Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We're continuing our study of Romans 8, 28 to 30. Turn in your Bibles there. And as we approach again these wonderful verses full of incredible truths about God's power and intention and eternal purposes in working redemptively for us, I want us to think, all of us, about one question. Each of us, I want, to, I want us to consider, what is your view of suffering? What is your view of suffering? As you approach suffering, times of suffering, difficulties, do you approach them with fear, anxiousness? Does pain and suffering cause you to get angry and resentful? Do you turn inward in despair? Do you wallow in self-pity when there's pain and trouble in your life? To who do you attribute your suffering? What is your view? Who's responsible or in charge or, or intending something in your, in your suffering? Is it chance? Is it the universe just being against you? Is it a, a God who's angry and vengeful? I'm not asking what your view should be. I'm not asking for the right answer that you could give in Sunday school class. I'm asking you to consider what's your functional go-to posture to difficulty and painful things in your life. Everybody thinking about that? That's very important as we come to these verses because here in these verses, as we've been looking at for a number of weeks, is this wonderful promise from God that he works all things together for our good. And we know that it's talking about difficult and painful things because who needs assurance that good things work together for good? It's meaningless and this has to have a meaning. (laughs) And so we know that the, the, the purpose of that statement is to reassure all of us that God is in control and he has a, not just a purpose, but a good purpose for our troubles. Also, the context, both the verses preceding and after, make it very clear that it's troubles. In the case, in, in specifically troubles like peril and nakedness and famine and sword. These are the things that Paul says are normative for the Christian life, but know and trust that God is working all of those things together for good to those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. So what's your attitude towards suffering. Let's keep that in mind as we go through these verses again today. Romans 8, 28 to 30. This is God's word and it is eternally true. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us now and feed us from your word and cause us all to profit from this time as you minister to us by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Pastor Tim opened up for us how scripture compares Christians to sheep and how sheep are stupid and generally unaware of danger and so therefore surprised and startled when something comes and causes them pain. We're like that. Pain startles us. It often catches us off guard and it causes us to get off balance and off kilter. It it sends us into a tailspin. It's very difficult to understand and process suffering 
when it comes. It's surprising to us. And that's the point of last week was to say, that's why we need shepherds. Can we all just admit that we need shepherds to care for us, gently leading us and comforting us through the difficulties attending our lives? That's one of the principal reasons pastors, elders, older women in the church exist. It's mostly what we do is we tend to people in their suffering. And it's not just practical, it's especially that there are dangers attending suffering. It, because it surprises us and startles us and hard to process, we actually need to be protected and admonished and, and cared for and, and hemmed in in the midst of, of trial. That was one of the big points from last week. We need shepherds. This week, I want to step back and look at something even more fundamental from this passage, and that is we actually need the pain itself. We don't just need shepherds to comfort us and lead us through pain. We actually need the pain. That's not a fun thought, but that's the thought that I believe the Lord has for us. He has a purpose for pain, and it's a good purpose. But what is specifically the purpose? What is that good purpose that God has for our pain? Well, step back from that and ask, what is the purpose of any of his kind dealings towards his people? What is he up to in not just destroying everybody, in showing kindness to any wicked sinner? What is God ultimately doing? What is he aiming at? We have asked that that question this way in preceding weeks, and that is, uh, why did God choose me? That's another way of asking, what is he up to? Why did God choose me? And we've been taught to answer rightly, just because. And, as, and we've, we've sung that same thought and sentiment in the, in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us Today. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Now, insofar as, it, as we're looking at ourselves for any reason that God would show mercy and kindness to wicked people like you and me, that is the proper response. Just because, because apparently I can't find anything in myself. Or I cannot give an answer to that question. Because if we look in ourselves for any reason that God should be kind to us, all we will find is reason for the opposite endless reason for him to just destroy us in his wrath and, and anger. Instead, but we find that he is kind to us. And while we can't find an answer in ourselves, we do find an answer to this question in scripture. What is he up to? He tells us what he's up to in showing kindness to sinners. It's actually stated in a number of places, but we get a sense of it here from verse 29. We actually get two answers. One builds to the next. One is immediate, and it does pertain to you and me. The other is something beyond and higher, a greater purpose even than you and me. It's in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, that is speaking of God, looking upon wicked, lost, sinful world, and anticipating all that would come to pass before it ever happened, and setting his love on certain individuals, deciding I'm going to love them anyway. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, why? Why did he foreknow and predestine any to salvation? This is the, the first and immediate reason we're given. To become conformed to the image of his son. God foreknew and predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Not merely to forgive us of our sins. Not merely to, to bring about and, and, and bless us with the gift, an incredible gift of justification being made right before him. As wonderful as those truths are, as precious as those, those things are, to us, they themselves are not the end. They are means to an end. What is the end? It's beyond that. It's 
that we would be conformed into the image of his son. Not just on paper in, 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 in the legal code, but actually in our life, in our person, in ourselves, that we would be conformed into the image of his son. What is the significance of this conformity? Well, you remember Genesis from the beginning. God made us to bear his image. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? It's not just to share his likeness. That is, accidentally, like, I happen to look like God. People have doppelgangers. I think that's how you pronounce it. It has two umlauts in the word, so don't ask me. But you know what a doppelganger is. It's like, oh, wow, I look like that person. That's interesting. There's no reason for that except chance. When I was young, I'm thinking about this because I, we just watched uh, The Princess Bride on Valentine's Day as a family. When I was little, people, my cousins used to think I looked like Fred Savage. When I got older, they thought I looked like Kirk Cameron. I don't look like either of those men anymore. But that's not the kind of likeness, the sort of accidental likeness, or doppelganger likeness that, uh, w- that God has given us um, from the first to share with him. It's a derivative likeness. It's like the image on a coin. Who's on a coin? Whose picture is on a coin? It's usually a president, if in another country, a monarch. And the forms, the lines, the shape on the coin re- reflect intentionally the form and the shape of the person who it represents. And that's like what God did with Adam is he, he drew into Adam and as he formed him his own likeness and his image, particularly his holy character. Adam reflected that in this world. He was his man, his image bearer in the world. Now you remember that when Adam fell, that image which he bore of God, that holy reflection of God's character was corrupted. It was marred. Calvin says in a number of places in his teachings on the fall that it was all but effaced. To efface something is like to scratch it out beyond recognition. Well, it was almost completely effaced in the fall. It's there, it's not entirely lost, but it has been just, just graffitied all over. It's been scratched out. And that's actually an offensive act, a treasonous act, to take the picture of, a, of your king, which he has put there by his choice and his will to reflect his image and to signify him to the world and then to scratch that, that image out, to draw little horns on the head of the, the, of the president's head on the coin, that's an offensive, rebellious act. And so therefore, it rightly brought upon Adam the sentence of death. God forewarned him that that's what would happen if you mess with the image, and that is what happened. When he sinned and fell, and the image was corrupted, God brought upon him the curse of sin and death. Now ever since then, Adam being the head of our race, the father of us all, as, in his, as the image bearer and, his, and in the corruption of that, he has been churning out bad copies of the image of God ever since. That explains you and me and all the men and women who have ever lived. We're bad copies of the image of Christ or of God marred, twisted, corrupted. It's there, it will always be there, but it has, been, it has been all but effaced. Here's what it says in Romans 5, 12. Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
So it's like Adam has children. Adam and Eve in the garden and all their potential children before the fall stood to just propagate the image of God throughout the world. (laughs) But after the fall, all they could do and have been doing ever since is propagating the bad, bad, um, what's the word? Bad copies. Adam, the father and head of our race, spreads his corruption and the sentence of death that attends it to his descendants. Now, what does God aim at in his redemptive, generous, and gracious work towards us? He, he aims at the reversal of that, fixing that problem. He aims to, as we see here, to restore the image of God in man through Christ. Christ is Adam 2.0. And there won't ever be a 3.0. Scripture calls him the last Adam. The first Adam had a problem. That system failed. Not failed in the sense that it caught God off guard, caught him by surprise. He knew and even decreed and intended this to the glory of his son. But Adam 1.0 failed. It, It broke down. So God enacted his long determined plan that Jesus, the new and second and the last Adam would come to fix the problem of the bad copies, to conform men again into the image of God, into his own image. He is the image of the incorruptible God. It says this in a number of ways and places. Here in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God who said, light light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christ reflects the image of God, and he is the one who shines in our hearts. John 1, 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has, he has shown us what the image of God is. And Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So what is God aiming at in all of his kind dealings towards us, in his foreknowledge, in his predestination, in his calling in real time, men and women who are wicked sinners to repent and believe and come to him. In his justifying them and making them right before him, forgiving their sins. And ultimately in their glorification in heaven. What he aims at is plopped right down here and taught to us in the middle of this passage. And that is that we would be conformed into his own image and likeness. It's, a, it's sad how many uh, Christians are taught that, or left wondering, rather, what is the point of life now that I'm saved? What am I doing here? I'm twiddling my thumbs. It's all taken care of. It's all done because Jesus has forgiven my sins. We hear that constantly. That's the constant refrain message. It's a wonderful message. But what, is there anything beyond that? I was left as a young person really wondering about this. What, what is the point of life now? Nobody has anything really to say up to me about that. Well, here we're taught that there is a purpose, even in our being forgiven, a purpose beyond that, and that is that we would be conformed into the image of Christ. That's the first and the immediate answer that, we're, that we see to the question of what is God's aim. But there's an even more ultimate aim that is taught to us in the next phrase. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For what? Well, to become conformed to the image of his son. But what's that about? To what end does that work? And here's, here's the great and ultimate reason 
for all of God's kind dealings towards men so that he, Jesus Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. What God is ultimately aiming at in the salvation of men has nothing to do with the men themselves. It has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ and his exaltation to the highest place. The fact that some men have a happy place and role to play in that exaltation is good news for you. But it's also important to realize it's ultimately about you. It's about the glory of God. That's his aim. He aims at the exaltation of his son to the highest place. That's taught to us or portrayed here by the word firstborn among many brethren. Christ, to be the firstborn in the Old Testament is to be, is, that's a very significant thing. In biblical language and history, to be the firstborn is very significant. It's to be, to have a double portion of the inheritance. It's to be the head of the family, the heir. It's to have the place of responsibility and highest honor in the family. That's why it was a shock and strange to Samuel when he was coming to anoint one of Jesse's sons and to the whole family that God overlooked the firstborn and the secondborn and the thirdborn and all the way down to the last to choose David who was not even there and nobody was even thinking about him. But that teaches us that in the language and the view of the, of the scriptures, to be the firstborn is to be the one chosen. Christ, the point of salvation, all that God is doing in his foreknowledge, his predestination, his justification, calling, sanctification, glorification, all that he's aiming at is to establish his son Jesus as the firstborn in the sight of everyone and everything. To give him the seat of honor and to and to make him the firstborn, not just off by himself, not the only begotten. Well, he is the only begotten, but not like an only child. But to give him a large number of, of brothers, many brethren. To make him the firstborn among many brethren. to conform us to Christ. This is the great purpose of, the, of God's work in our lives, and the purpose beyond that is that he would be glorified by it. Imitation, said Oscar Wilde, and I hope this is the last time I ever quote Oscar Wilde. <laughs> Imitation is the highest form of flattery. To, conf to be conformed into the image to be changed from the corrupted image of Adam that we bear by nature into the incredibly pure and holy image of Christ to, is a kind of imitation. It is for us to learn each day more and more to imitate him and that imitation is the highest form of flattery that we can pay to the Lord. We see that here. He's working to conform us into the image of his son so that his son can be exalted. And so as we learn to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ and to take on his holy character and put away the old man and to put on the new man, to become like him, it is the highest compliment we can pay him. And God is looking to pay him compliments. And he's commanding us to do it each day as he commands us to war against and struggle against the flesh and to put off those things that are a result of our sin and to put on the righteousness and the holiness of the Savior. We are giving honor. All of that, every little victory, every struggle against the flesh is a, is a way of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and giving him honor. The ultimate focus of Salvation of every step and progress along the journey is the glory of Christ. It's the reason that God is doing anything kind to you. 
or for you. It's to honor his son. So don't have a big head. <laughs> have big thoughts of, of God. This whole passage is from every angle you look at yourself is teaching you to look at yourself as a little thing that God is doing for his own glory. There is nothing significant about you except that God is doing something to his own glory. And wonder of wonders, you get something nice. You have a nice part to play in that. Jesus said concerning our, the necessity of, of our conformity into his image. He said this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We are to imitate and each day more and more be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. John Owen says that to mark the footsteps of Jesus and to follow him wherever he leads, this is our putting on of Jesus Christ and growing up into the same image and likeness with him, which is the purpose of God's work. That's what he's aiming at, that we would grow up into his likeness and image. To follow him wherever he leads. Those words bring us back to the question at the beginning. What is your view of suffering? If we are, if the point of God's work is to conform us into the image of Christ, to the glory of Christ, and, by, and to do this, we follow him wherever he leads, where does he lead? Jesus said, as you remember, that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you're going to serve him, you must follow him. If you're going to follow him, here's the way. You deny yourself and you take up his cross and follow him. We don't like to hear those words. Those are not happy words. They sound very difficult. We really do want to be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. Those are words penned by Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? I think those are the words. We want that, really. John Owen again says, describes our nature and our innate aversion to suffering, even as Christians. Even when we know the right answer, this is how we feel, and he describes it for us. We would be children, but not be chastened. We would be gold and not be tried or refined in the furnace. We would overcome but we don't want anybody to tell us that we have to fight and contend. We would be Christians and not suffer. A Christian who refuses the cross of Jesus to bear it is a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as a Christian who refuses to bear and shoulder the cross of Jesus Christ in his life. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everybody. Even more pointedly, God has made the hope of heaven contingent, dependent, on our willingness to suffer and share in the sufferings of Christ. Romans 8.17, it's earlier part of the context that these verses fall in. 8.17 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if, we, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Are you scared of suffering? 
Are you afraid and horrified of the thought of having to bear shame in this community for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the cost of discipleship for you a little too high? If so, and in the first service, I think everybody was just like, yep. And that's the truth. Owen has described what's, what's real for each of us when he says that we would be children, but not chastened. We'd be gold, but we don't want to be refined. <laughs> we don't want pain. We don't want pain. Who wants pain? Nobody. Well, consider this. Jesus understands you perfectly. Jesus understands you perfectly. And he's not, he's not wagging his finger at you. He understands you empathetically. He has great sympathy for that. And here's part of the reason why. It says in, in Hebrews 5, 7 and 8, that Christ Jesus, in the days of his flesh, so in his, the time of his earthly life here, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Why? He, he was directing those prayers to the one who could save him from death. What is that telling us? It's telling us Jesus did not want to suffer. Jesus and his, as a man... He's fully God, but fully man. And as a man, he has that same aversion to suffering that you feel. And as he came to the hour of his suffering and death, he asked God, with great cries and tears, remove this cup from me. Jesus knows and can empathize. He understands this perfectly well. It says in verse 8 that although he was, oh, I want to tell you this, what Calvin says about this is that those words, that description is thrown in there by the author of Hebrews so that we would not think that Christ had an iron spirit which felt nothing. I think we're tempted to think that, well, He's, he's Jesus, right? He's the son of God. He's got every advantage. He's got all the power. He's perfectly good. Suffering's easy for him. It's harder for me. He's fully man. And here's what John Brown, a really good commentator on uh, particularly the Gospels, but he says this about Jesus and his suffering. All suffering is, from the very constitution of human beings, the object of aversion and fear. It repulses us, we hate it. For all human beings, that's in our nature. And our savior had all the innocent feelings of humanity. It's not a sin that you don't like pain. God made you that way. He made Jesus that way. And Jesus lived it and he understands. Nevertheless, there is a purpose for pain and the causing of pain in our lives. It says in verse 8 of Hebrews 5 that although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. A lot of difficulty in interpreting those words historically. But it seems as if most commentators agree that this means that Jesus became experimentally acquainted with suffering as he walked the path of obedience. And this was part of him being qualified for office and shown to be a perfect and good savior, qualified for the job. Along the way, he picked up all of the badges of a good and perfect author of salvation. And one of those badges is his sufferings. Qualified to be your savior because of my sufferings. So Jesus can relate to your fears. He has experienced them. He has walked through them. He didn't hesitate to cry out in agony that God would take it from him. But 
as we know, he had the faith and the submissiveness to see it through and say, nevertheless, not what I will or love or feel the need for, but your will be done, Lord. And because of this, Jesus has great, great, great sympathy for sufferers. Because he is, ex- he is acquainted experientially with pain. And this is, you know this, those of you who have suffered, you know that the, the sympathy it gives you for other people going through similar things. This is one of, the way, one of the great gifts that God has given me in my life is when I have suffered, having somebody who has walked that path before me come to me and look me in the eye and knowingly say, I know it's hard and I'm sorry. And that's great comfort. It's an experiential sharing of things in common. Jesus has that to give us. He, he has walked this way before us. So what is your attitude towards suffering? Do you have faith for it? I'm not gonna, there's no pressure to say you like it. (laughs) That's not the requirement. Do you have faith for it? Do you, are you submissive to it? Will you be taught by it? I was talking to one of our elders yesterday about this topic and I brought that point up about our attitude towards suffering, and he said, you know what I've noticed, and this is a man who has lived. You know what I've noticed is that it's one thing to have faith for ourselves to suffer. It's another thing to have faith for others, and particularly our children. Very difficult to have faith for our children to watch them suffer. And it takes faith. If we're going to parent wisely and well, We are not going to protect our children from every conceivable pain. To do that is oppressive and damaging. Now, you know, everyone know I love my mother. If you know my mother, you know that there's lots to love about her. You've gotten to know her over the last few years as she suffered and, and died of cancer. Dear godly mother, worth celebrating for the rest of my life. She failed me in this regard. I was, am still, and if you don't think so, I'm happy that I'm fooling you, but I am a very shy person and scared of strangers deeply. And when I was a child, I would not make phone calls to anybody I did not know. So if I had to call and ask a question of somebody on the other end of the line that I did not know and wasn't already very comfortable and safe with, it was, it, I was deathly afraid of that. And what did my mother do? She made the calls for me. That's just a little example of the kind of ways that it would have been better for me as a young man if my mom just said, I know this is hard, but this is what you're going to do. I'll give you a strategy for how to do it. Now get on the phone and make the call. <laughs> You'll find that it's not actually that scary. <laughs> We cannot protect our children from every pain or fear or anxiety or trouble. God intends those things for good. It's what he uses to grow us and give us maturity and strength and confidence. And ultimately, in a spiritual sense, to grow us and to conform us into his image. Pain has that role to bear. It's the crucible or the mechanism by which he accomplishes his purpose in us. So what's your attitude towards suffering? There's four things I want us to consider before we end. Four meditations about suffering. And to set them up, I just want us to realize that Christ our high priest, by his sufferings and death in which he offered himself up to God on our behalf for us, by that way of suffering which he walked, has consecrated behind him the way of suffering for us to follow in and has changed the nature of suffering and trial into something that is holy and good and safe and necessary. Now, if you don't like that, 
it's understandable. <laughs> Jesus can sympathize with you. But it's, you should never be surprised by it. These are, these are facts that we are met with at the door of the Christian life. They are not truths that we discover later on in the, as we finally get around to reading the fine print. This is what Jesus announces from the get-go. We should never really be surprised by pain. Consider these four things. And this is, the, I'm going to start from the worst news and work to the best news. The worst news, I think, is this. Jesus, by our, as our high priest, walking before us the way of suffering and having an, an consecrated, set-apart suffering now forevermore for our good and benefit, having done that, Jesus has made suffering for a Christian both necessary and unavoidable. You can hope you can work, you can conspire all you want to avoid suffering in your life. But it will always be the portion of those who follow Jesus. Paul tells us here in Romans 29 that the sons of God are predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. And no small part of that conformity is accomplished by trial. That is, trial is the main tool God uses to conform us into the image of his son. Jesus tells us plainly that through much tribulation you must enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a truth, a fact that we're met with at the door. If you'll come after me, Potential disciples, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Suffering is made both necessary and unavoidable. Not everybody suffers in the same way to the same degree. God has a variety of ways and methods that he works in each of our lives. Some people suffer so much by God's in his infinite wisdom and by his design. Some people suffer so much that by comparison, everybody else around them seems to get off scot-free. But that does not undercut what scripture everywhere testifies to, that if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted, we will suffer. That there is a suffering that he has left behind that is his for us to fulfill. Here's what he says about it. Paul says in Colossians 1.24 that he's doing everything that he can to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There is suffering that is necessary and required as part of the Christian life. And if you don't like the terms, you can leave. You can stay and you can conspire and you can try to avoid it, but if you really, in the end, don't like the terms, you can leave Jesus. It's take it or leave it. These are the terms, and those terms are given you at the door. Suffering is the way that we follow him. If we don't leave him, then let's not complain. Let's not be caught off guard or surprised. Let's have an expectation for this. Let's have faith for it. Let's exercise faith and patience in it. Suffering is both necessary and unavoidable. Number two, he has made all sufferings for the gospel honorable. He underwent incredible shame in his sufferings. Some sufferings are very shameful things. There's public shaming and accusation that comes, came to Jesus and comes to many of his followers in their life. For, for associating with him. He bore that shame in incredible ways. Whipped, stripped, mocked, falsely accused, hung on a tree. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was deeply shamed in the midst of his sufferings. And certainly as he's wrestling with God in the garden in prayer and asking that he would take this cup from him, that it would pass from him, the shame of it all it has to be part of what it is that he's wrestling with. 
in his spirit, part of the agony that he's undergoing. It, it is for you. How, much, how big a portion of sh- is your fear of shame when you think of being persecuted for Jesus? For me, it's a huge part of it. Just the shame of people thinking ill of me. That's a, for me, that's a big motivation. But he has rendered honorable all humiliation and shame that we bear for him. And this was immediately apparent to the apostles in the early part of Acts. They, were re- they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. This is an amazing thing that, that God has done, Jesus has done, in, in walking the way of suffering and consecrating it as our high priest. He has made shameful things that we bear for him honorable. He tells us, if this happens to you, if you're persecuted for righteousness sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. He's ready to honor any reproach or shame that we bear for him. He's, it stores up for us great reward. And he says, be excited about this reward. It's so great. Number three, he has made our sufferings useful and profitable to us. As I said, this is, suffering is the main mechanism by which he conforms us into his image and likeness. I want to read you a, a paragraph from John Owen. If I tried to say these things, it would take two or three pages. So I, d- I didn't dare try. But these were things that were super helpful to me, and I want you to hear them. John Owen says this about sufferings being useful. Troubles and afflictions in themselves and their own nature have no good in them. Nor do they tend unto any good end. They grow out of the first sentence against sin and are in their own nature penal. They are penalties. Every pain, every sorrow, every ache, every persecution is, is in its nature a penalty that results from our falling into sin. It's part of the curse. Nor are sufferings to those who have no interest in Christ, so those who are outside of Christ, anything but effects of wrath, the wrath of God. That's what pain is. It is effects of the wrath of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ, by his consecrating of them, setting them apart from a, from a, from an, from God's wrath or from a common use to a sacred use. That's what consecrated means. By consecrating troubles and sufferings, he has dedicated and sanctified them to a profitable and good and useful end. He has thereby cut them off from their old stock of wrath and the curse and planted them on that of love and goodwill. He has taken them off from the covenant of works and translated them into that of grace. He has turned their course from death towards life and immortality, mixing his grace, love, and wisdom with these bitter waters. He has made them sweet and wholesome. And if we would have benefit by them, we must always have regard unto this consecration of them. This is a thought we should meditate on, that there is nothing good in in troubles and pains, but Jesus, as our high priest, has consecrated them and made them profitable. It's a, that's part of the miracle of what he has done for us. And what it's, Paul is saying and indicating when he says all things work together for good. Lastly, he has made difficulties, pains, and sorrows safe. They're like a wilderness. Anybody had this experience when there's pain and difficulty and trials in your life, it's like a wilderness at times that you're lost in. A very difficult place to live in the midst of a trial. Jesus has made a way in that wilderness for us. He has promised himself, pledged himself as a shepherd and a guide to lead us even through the most difficult, dark, and painful places. 
he has made the safe he has made the way safe for his people through the wilderness he promises never to leave or forsake us the choir in their anthem today sang these words that through darkness and perplexity point thou the heavenly way point me to heaven through darkness and perplexity lord that was their prayer that they led us in And that is our, as a good and right appeal to the Lord in the midst of trial. But what I want us to see is that God has actually appointed the trial and made a safe way through it. The, there, is, there is a safe place to live right in the midst of trouble. In fact, there is no other safe place to live. It is the only safe place. And we see this sometimes. We, it's hard to see it when, like during the week, sometimes we come into the house of the Lord. Like David, he was tempted to look at all of the, the wicked people around him and how they prospered. <laughs> and they had no troubles or even any pains in their death. No suffering. What's wrong with me? What gives? What am I doing with my life that's so wrong? And then he came into the house of God and he perceived their end, that their feet are on slippery places that their end is destruction. There is no safe place. There is no safer place, and there's no safe place outside of the footsteps of the Lord. Even if those footsteps are in the midst of the most excruciating valley and frightening place, even if it feels like a wilderness and you're wandering around in it for years, that is the way of safety that Christ will lead you through. That is the place of his protection. He is there, he intends it, and by it he will lead us home. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will give us faith for suffering, help us to understand it better, to understand its place and its role and purpose in our lives, and to honor you in it by our faith, by our hopefulness, by our steadfastness and by our perseverance. These things we don't have to offer you, and so we ask that you would provide what you require. Give to us these things, patience, steadfastness, and endurance. And above all, give us joy. Joy at the thought of finally making it to the end, and joy in the midst of our trials, which surpasses understanding and that gives us strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.